We are beginning the series called, why do we do that? All right? Or why do we do that? Um, because uh, what I realize is that there's a lot that we do that if we grew up with it, we just take it for granted. And we do it because that's what we saw done. And we were taught to do it. And we don't know why we do that. Um, I also realize that there are people who have one understanding of why we do that, and somebody else has a completely different understanding about why we do that. And then when they talk to each other, they're like, what? Right? And then we have folks who are like, I would maybe like to do that, but I'm not going to do that if I don't know why we do that. Um, right? So there's a lot of things that we might try on and that we might do if we knew why and the meaning behind it. And with anything that I give you, it's going to be this opinion, and there are four others that you're going to hear somewhere else, and that's all fine, because that's very Jewish, that we don't have one reason, one explanation, one dogma for anything. So number one, I would love for us to generate a whole lot more questions. So I don't pretend that I have like the that I have it covered. Um, number two, I really want this conversation to be a conversation. So please feel free to jump in. Um, I also really want this to help us explore ways we might either deepen our current practice or expand and try on some things that maybe we were like, that is so weird. Like, why are they doing that? And then once we hear an explanation, we're like, oh, that's kind of nice. Maybe I'll try that, right? And you can start at home in the privacy of your own kitchen and try something on. All of us have felt like imposters. So I really want to, I really want to say that out loud a lot and often. We all feel like imposters when we try something on that others have been doing for a long time. We feel like, like, like we're play acting because it's not really ours yet. The only way something becomes ours is by doing it over and over and over and over again. So the first time I put my hands together after yoga class and bowed my head and said namaste, I'm like, what the heck? Like, like, I'm not Buddhist. I'm not, right? What the heck, right? But it's considered polite to do that. That's the ritual with which you show gratitude to yourself, to every other yogi in the room, and to your teacher. And so it's a sign of respect. I certainly understand rituals as a sign of respect. So I did it. But it took me a while, a while, um, to, to not feel like I was pretending or, or I was like an imposter, like, namaste, whatever, like namaste in bed is like what I usually be like. But um, I've done it now so long and so often and in so many different circumstances, feeling different ways in my body, feeling different ways about the world, feeling different ways on my mat that I really, really mean it most times when I bow my head in gratitude for, for this time of practice on my mat for the people that give me the container as a community of practice and for my teacher and for the tradition right, of teaching that leads to me being able to do this with guidance in this moment. So I mean namaste now in a really important way. That took time to develop. So all of this is to say there's lots of reasons I hope you're here and all of them are legit reasons and um, there's no limit to this list so if we need to add 16 more classes I would be thrilled that we have that many uh, questions that people have or that many you know questions about why we do what we do or what we're doing uh, in the first place 
I thought a good place to start might be Shabbat. That is something we do in the sanctuary, so people see it if they're zooming in. It's something that people come who never come to synagogue and see stuff happening. Um, sometimes you go to someone's house and they're doing it, um, and so there. I think it's it's a easy way in because all of us are somewhat familiar with Shabbat, right? So it's a starting place for us to like take things that are somewhat familiar and go, okay, so. What is it with that one thing that they do, right? That, that I see people do that, or that even I do. Like, what is that about? So we're going to start with Shabbat. And so what do we start Shabbat with? We start Shabbat with candles and we start Shabbat with, uh, Kiddush. And generally, if we're at a table or sometimes even ritually here, because people like insist on it, um, we have a challah here, even in shul, um, even in synagogue on Friday night. So when we begin Shabbat, we begin Shabbat with two candles. So that's the first thing that we do, whether we're at our table at home, whether we are in the synagogue, when we're beginning Shabbat together, we begin by lighting candles. So some people, so you might ask the question of my grandmother, why did you light Shabbat candles way before we had dinner and leave them in the kitchen? (laughs) right on a tray and then we didn't have dinner until eight o'clock well the reason why do we do that why did she do that is because she was following the halacha she was following jewish law that says you can't light a fire after shabbos starts shabbos begins at a very specific time so she had to light candles at that moment where she could still strike a match before shabbat actually began to say the blessing, and then Shabbat happens. But my grandfather was still at shul, or, ready for this, still at work. So, right, so she lit candles when she was halachically obligated to light candles, but that, but that didn't mean they were eating dinner yet, right? And especially when it gets dark early, she would light candles, and she was alone, lighting candles, and then she would leave them where they were safe until she could sit down and eat dinner. So, and it's on my list even. I anticipated that question. <laughs> so Stephen Lewis asked, why are there two candles? And like, fortunately, that's on my list to talk about. Uh, so, so why do you light them when you light them? So if you are beginning Shabbat at the halakhically appointed time, you have to light them. And it says on, on a Jewish calendar exactly what that time is. Um, There are those of us who say we don't light Shabbat candles until Shabbat starts for us, right? Until it really is Shabbos for me. If I'm still running around getting things ready for dinner or I'm still trying to get here to start services, it's not Shabbos for me. Like I have really dropped in or started that practice that is – what just happened to everybody? Okay, there, there. I had heard that – the correct time to light is 20 minutes before sunset. Is that right? So you will look in a Jewish calendar. It will tell you exactly the time that you need to know. You can look it up on the Internet. It is, like, very clear halachically um, when one lights Shabbos candles. But, yes, it's about making sure one doesn't light when it's actually Shabbat. So there's a grace period to make sure one doesn't, right, um, cross over that line. Okay. So why two candles? Why two candles? So actually, 
when you when you listen to the bracha, when you listen to the translation of the bracha, what is the bracha? who made us holy with your mitzvot and commands us lahadlik what ner shel shabbat who commands us regarding the lighting of a flame for shabbat so it's actually in the singular of the bracha but you have to laugh already that the rabbis are saying you god who commanded us uh where is it written that we're commanded to light shabbos candles is that in the torah no. So the rabbis make up, you commanded us, because they decide we should light Shabbos candles. That's a whole nother conversation. All right. So it only says one nair, one flame for Shabbat. But the practice is to light at least two. Where in the Torah do we get the commandment to keep Shabbat? What is the language used in Torah to keep Shabbat? <laughs> you so know this. You know it. You, thank you. So one place in Torah, it says, Shamor et Shabbat, that we should keep Shabbat, observe Shabbat. In another place in Torah, it says, Zachor et Shabbat, You shall remember Shabbat and make it holy. Right? So, Shamor, which one is it? Is it Shamor? Is it Zachor? Well, God forbid that we should have words of Torah conflicting. God forbid. It's both. We're Jews. It's both and. So we have two candles, two flames to uh, to memorialize Shamor v'Zachor. We shall remember and we shall keep Shabbat. Both commandments are there. Uh, and it's and the rabbis put it in their beautiful poem Lachadodi, which with which we welcome Shabbat. Um, and so you have minimally two. There are many people, including my grandmother, blessed memory, because my mother's family was not Jewish. Let many of you know my mother was a Jew by choice. Um, and so my grandmother lit one candle for each person in the family. So she had a beautiful silver candelabra with five branches because there were five people in her family um and even after my aunt died in her 40s of breast cancer my grandmother continued to light five candles and cried every time she lit candles um, so spouses did not get at it you know, like it was her her nuclear family um many people have a custom of if you have people over you have a little candle for everybody um at the table um, and it's, it's, they're just lovely customs around how many. All right, so at least two for Shamor and Zachor. You can have as many as you like. All right, so so we light the candles. Then what do you see people do? Everyone here, people at Zoom, even Judy in bed's going, yeah, there's there's Susan, there's Lee. Okay, what, what do we see people do? We see them go one, two, three times over the candles like well, we're just going to stop there because we know that there's more choreography past there but why do they do that why do we do that all right what have y'all heard why do we do that to draw the light to draw the light okay beautiful right to draw the light why three times yeah right why do we do that right First of all, three is a very important number in many magical traditions. So throughout the ancient world, three is a, is a special number. It's, so there's one, which is unique, right? The one. Then you have the pairing of two. The, the first thing past one unique, the pairing of two is three. 
that's one theory in anthropology about why three is so special, but three is special in many cultures, especially in the ancient world. So, okay, three, right? That kind of was like, yeah, duh, okay, three. But of course, that's not enough for our tradition to say, oh, because it was a powerful number in the ancient world, that's not going to work. So one interpretation is that during the week, what do we do with our energy? We put it out, right? Our energy is facing out. And, and that's good. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take our light and share it with the world. We're supposed to take our energy and use it to make the world a better place. We're supposed to use our creativity and our mind and our actions and our thought and our speech, everything to impact the people around us and to impact the world, hopefully in good ways. So on Shabbat, we are intentionally reversing that, right? That we are actually gathering energy and bringing it back into ourselves. And that means during this time of Shabbat, we are going to pay attention to our thought, our speech, and our actions, and hopefully have each of those categories of how we are in the world line up with the intention of Shabbat. And what is the intention of Shabbat? To rest and to resolify. Shabbat vayinafash, right? We're told in the Torah, Shabbat vayinafash. On the seventh day, God rested or stopped doing vayinafash and re-nefeshed, re-solified. So it's not about just stopping. It's about what do we do on Shabbat with our thought, what we think about, what we pay attention to, what we talk about, meaning hopefully not about other people as much as we tend to, um, not about work, not about, right, you know, production, not about plans, not about, right, all of that. Um, and then what do we do with ourselves, right, um, to resolify, to do something for ourselves that that impacts us differently than what we do the rest of the week. So with those three areas, we want to bring our intention, our energy, our focus, everything back into re-selfifying. To rest and reflect, all of which sounds a little bit passive. So what I like to be really out there about is what are the actions we will do to resolify? Because that's a challenge for us in the West. We know all about how to do actions that are taking care of other people or being productive, right? Or whatever, right? Organize it. You know, we're really good at that. But like, if I ask people, what will you do to resolify this week? Okay, I know my first answer. I'm taking a very long schmecky bath, <laughs> right? That is the place I am my best self. And I am my best self for probably at least 10 minutes after I get out, right? depending on what my daughter has to say to me at a minute 11. But um, for 10 minutes after I get out of the bath, I am, I am a pretty good person, right? Like that's the object of Shabbat is to do stuff to re-selfify, to re-solify, to be closer to the person that we would be if we really reflected, really reflected on our actions in the past week. There's another line from Wake up! Right, which has always seemed strange to me that on the day of rest, the wake first up. thing we say is wake up. And then so wake up to what? Wake up to what? Right, exactly. It is about waking up. It is totally about waking up. And I think that's what we forget. Because we're like, take a day off. Like that, 
For a lot of people, first of all, they don't, they don't know what that means, right? That's a problem in itself in our culture. Stars laughing like, uh, yeah, I recognize this. Um, but also it's like, we, we don't know exactly what, what is a program of doing or thinking, you know, that, that actually helps us become more of who we want to be. That's the work of Shabbat. It's not that we don't work on Shabbat. It's that we don't do that kind of work. It's not that we don't have work to do. The work of Shabbat should be active and engaged and about like paying attention and giving energy to our relationships, right? To our improving our own relationship to ourselves, about spending time in nature, right? About those things that that really fill us. And and I believe also um, bring us back into contact with play I think play is a really important thing. There's going to be a sermon one high holidays about play. We have forgotten how to play. A lot of us as adults, um, that and bringing us back into contact with beauty, right? For me, that's what nature is about, right? About music, about art. It's about bringing us back into a relationship with beauty. Okay. So preview of two high holiday sermons. So you see people do this, then what do they do next? Cover their eyes. Right. So Lisa just gave one intention for that is that if we're drawing really our energy back and our intention to bringing things back into here, then right, then this is a very intimate act, right? An intimate way of taking that energy, taking that intention and truly pulling it in. All right. What is the real reason that this started as a practice? What did I tell you? You're not allowed to strike a match after Shabbat begins. You can't make a fire. That's a basic biblical commandment. You can't make a fire after Shabbat begins, right? Well, if if Shabbos, if Shabbos begins at a certain time, but I have to say the bracha over the candles that brings in Shabbos, I can't say the bracha and then light the candles. That's a reverse order, uh, right? So, well, sorry. The, the order is usually you say the blessing and fulfill the commandment as quickly as possible. You say a bracha, and then you do the action that the bracha is about as quickly as possible. But if I say the bracha, I can't then light the candles. Because if I'm saying the bracha because it's Shabbos, once it's Shabbos, I can't strike a match. So what I do is I light the match and light the candles just before Shabbat begins. And then, whoop, I don't even see them. (laughs) Are there candles lit? How do I know if I can't see them? So if I say a bracha, right, I say the blessing, I take my hands away, and look, the mitzvah is fulfilled. So halachically, it was a halachic problem that led to you light them, cover your eyes. Now now I'm going to begin Shabbat, right? Now I take my hands away and the candles are lit. There's no time between the bracha and the performance of the mitzvah, but I didn't have to strike a match when it's already Shabbos. Now, most of us would not be terribly thrilled with that explanation for why we do this, nor would we still do this, right? Because we're not halachic Jews, right? For the most part. Um, and so like, like most things, it started one way, but a whole tradition began around. And I think it really is, in my family anyway, it really was the reason they did it. They couldn't have told you what I just told you, probably. They couldn't have told you that reason. Even my grandmother of blessed memory wouldn't have known this halach. She would say, it's because we take this moment, you know, to reflect. We take this moment to be quiet. We take this moment, right? And that really, 
was the reason and intention, I think, for most of the people that we would know um, why they did this. It is a moment to, you know, the craziness of everything going on for Jewish women. It was the craziness of getting dinner ready, getting the kids changed, getting the tablecloth on, get, you know, getting everything to the table. Like there really was a minute to go, okay, like <sighs> it's time for Shabbos, right? And there was some kind of pause, some kind of break. Um, for me, we don't do this, <laughs> right, in the world. So for me, just this action is associated with Shabbos is starting, right? So even if I'm running to get here, even if like, oh my God, as I'm coming in, they tell me somebody's in the hospital, we've got a crisis, right? Whatever it is, the minute I feel my own hands on my face, it's Shabbos. More than anything else, that triggers my Shabbos reaction. But that took time, right? It took time for that to develop, that association. So the other thing I really believe is true about th this moment is that it's just like Shema, that we, are, we know that the eyes grew out of the brain, right? The eyes are part of the brain, which means anything that's coming into our eyeballs is coming into our brain like immediately. And so we get all of this visual stimulation that goes right to the brain. The minute we do this, we stop the bombardment of stimulation and can have a second to kind of drop in with no input. I mean, of course, there's audio input and all that or and sensory. Like I feel the, the air on my skin. That is way less, right, of an impact on what's happening in my brain, my conscious brain, than my visual um, field being stimulated. Um, and so for me, it really is about, okay, like cutting off right, the, the visual field so that we can drop uh, our attention and our seeing, our looking uh, more inward. Yes? Um, my grandma, well, one of them taught me that when after I cover my eyes, open them and see the candles, that's when Shabbat begins. Yes. Yes. Instead of, you know, this... Is that when Shabbat begins? Well, for you it is. For me it's when, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, halakhically, that's how it starts. Is that Shabbat doesn't start until you see the candle. And so you cover your eyes until you say the bracha. And when you take your hands away, look, magically it's Shabbat. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. What happens after that? We've lit candles. It's now. Oh, by the way, um, why don't we blow them out? Why don't they do that? It's so funny. The answer is because we don't blow them out. <laughs> no, they need the light. Ah, so Susan says it's because they actually needed the light, right? So Shabbat candles are allowed to be used for light. So in a place where you had no electricity, your Shabbat flames were actually part of what lit your dinner table. That's how you saw your food, right? You might have other light, but they were actually lights. But, but what is the other reason for not blow, blowing them out? Let's say you have other, you know, flames around and you don't, you have a big candelabra. By the way, this was a real candelabra, um, that got wired to be in here as the eternal flame. So you have something like this burning. Why do you need these? They're nothing. Why don't, why don't we blow them out? Right, so. Does that work? <laughs> You're not supposed to extinguish a flame. Very interesting. Yes. We are not to light a flame. 
We are not to extinguish a flame. And I'm always like, the question is, why don't we blow them out? My question is, why do people blow other candles out? Right? Like, I like, like to reverse the question. Like, why would you light a candle for someone's birthday and then go and blow it out? Like, that makes no sense to me. Maybe because I was raised as a Jew, but it's like, why would you celebrate somebody that blow out their flame? That feels like so, like, ooh, like it's like, right, we don't blow Hanukkah candles out. You lit them for a reason. Like, why would you blow them out? No, we don't blow them out. God forbid, poo, poo, poo. So um, I'm, I'm very Jewish, right? So, um, but, so what that means, though, also is that you'll notice that you'll never see candlesticks in general made of glass. Because if the candle melts all the way into the holder, it will break the glass. So if you see Shabbat candles, that, candlesticks that are made out of glass, they are very special. Or they are not Shabbat and the people blow them out before they burn into the glass. Exactly right. All right. So after we light candles, what do we do? We make Kiddush. So those of you who were at the women's retreat... Like, let's see what you remember. Um, so, you know, where I taught Kiddush? Oh, great. Lois, one of the organizers of the women's retreat, is like, did we talk about Kiddush? <laughs> great. How profound and amazing the rabbi's teachings are and impactful in her congregation. So we, we have Kiddush. We always have wine at moments of transitioning. So when we have moments of ritual transition, we have wine. Every ancient culture in the world has some kind of libation, right, that goes with marking a change in status, whether that's a status in time or a status in person. Um, So either it was something you offered by pouring it out, right, or in our case, we don't pour it out. Um, We... We're Jews, we drink it, right? Like, why would you waste good wine, right? Not that we usually have good wine here. The Scheibels make sure I have good wine because otherwise I get something that's been open for three weeks and then it's just like, I'm like, are you allowed to say a blessing over something that like is really horrible to put in your mouth? Um, All right, so it doesn't have to be wine. Obviously, it can be grape juice. Um, It has to be something that is the fruit of the vine, so it doesn't have to be um, alcoholic. It can be absolutely non-alcoholic. There's a whole Talmudic conversation about what one can make kiddush over. I'm not going to go into the details. There is a whole Talmudic dispute about what one can make uh, kiddush over and what one can make havdalah over. So if you're interested, maybe we'll have a class on what can you make Kiddush over? It is normative in our traditions uh, that y'all would have grown up with, that our grandparents grew up with, to use wine or grape juice um, for it. So um, so we have a Kos Kiddush. We have a Kos a cup. People say, why is it? Why do they do that out of silver? Why do they do that out of that, you know, material? So what's your answer? It's special. Exactly. It's special. And so we, we do chidor mitzvah. We do the beautification of a mitzvah. You shouldn't just do the minimum required to fulfill a mitzvah. Our, our uh, tradition understands the aesthetic value of if you're going to do something, how do you show that you aren't doing it grudgingly? You make it, you go to extra lengths to make it beautiful, right? So you don't make it over a Dixie cup. 
unless you have to. If you have to, of course, you do the minimum. But preferably, you're not doing Kiddush over a Dixie cup. You're using something precious to you. And, and often, it was the most expensive cup you could afford as a couple because you would have it in your home, right? And so you would be gifted often a, a Kos Kiddush because you couldn't afford it when you were starting out, right? Sari and Matt, you couldn't afford it when you were starting out, right? Um, if you say so, she says, <laughs> lovely. Okay. So I don't mean to make any assumption. Um, but right. So you were often gifted it. And I tell couples when they're getting married, ask for it. Ask for a Koski douche. There you go. Right. Love that. Cause it's like pick one for us. There will be something you've given us. It graces our table, right? It's more expensive than what we like. But, um, and so, um, so you have a special coast. Uh, and then, so you often see a coast without a stem. In traditional Jewish households, you will see a kos, a cup that is just a cup in the palm of the hand. So the way one fills a kos kiddush is one fills it and people say, why do they do that? Um, my grandfather would have a cup, you know, without a stem and he had a little silver tray under it. And always he would pick up the kiddush cup and it would spill into the tray. And I was like, why does he do that? Doesn't he know that if he filled the cup a little less, it wouldn't spill? Like, my parents are telling me all the time, don't fill it till the time you may spill it on the rug. Right? Like, it's not, like, surely they know this as grown-ups, that if they don't fill it that high, it won't spill. But what's the practice? The practice, actually, is to fill the cup just past the rim. And if you do it just past the rim, there's this nifty thing that happens because of gravity where it forms a, what's that called? Thank you. A men, like your knee? Meniscus. So it's, it forms a meniscus, Harvey Freed tells me. Um, it forms a meniscus, like in your kneecap. Ooh. I don't know about y'all, but knees and eyes like make me like uh, really hinky. So a meniscus forms. So that means your cup is full technically if there's a meniscus the high the high point of the meniscus is higher than the rim what does that mean technically your cup runneth over because it's higher than the rim but my father my grandfather never learned how to pick it up like and not have that happen but it was okay because when he picked it up and it spilled what was happening kosi rivaya from the 23rd psalm my cup runs over and what that signals is, however hard the week has been, however tough everything feels right now in the world, let's just say, let's just imagine things were hard in the world around us, then one could say, even in the face of that, I affirm at Shabbat that my cup runneth over. So, and it's just not as, it's just not as impactful to say my cup runs over. So I'm going to stay with runneth. Um, so my cup runneth over. Um, and so you'll often see that they place it in the palm of the hand. So even though I use a stemmed Koski douche, because that's what we have here, um, I put it in the palm of my hand. So why do they do that? <laughs> right? Why do we do that? Why do we put it in the palm of our hand when there's a stem that you're supposed to hold it by? Right? So the custom comes when you don't have a stemmed glass. You seat it in the palm of the hand. Um, this is the tender part of our hand and our foot. In Hebrew, there's no difference between this and the bottom of the foot in terms of it's, they're both called palms. The palm of the hand, the palm of the leg, because there's no foot in Hebrew. It's all, 
it's all leg. Um, and so um, the palm of the leg, the palm of the hand um, are both very tender and very much places where we take in energy and where we give out energy. So when we bless people, what do we do? We put our hands on their head um, because it's a way of communicating energy, a way of communicating bracha, whatever words you want to use for what that means to like send that out, (laughs) whatever it is you're sending out, good juju, whatever, to somebody else. Um, And so we place the koskidush there in this place of vulnerability, of receptivity, of being ready to be tender. It's Shabbat. We're with the people we love. We're with the people we trust. We're in a safe environment, God willing. It's safe at home. It's not always. We know that. Um, and so we place the coast in this tender, gentle, open, because we open the palm and place the coast there, this open part of ourselves as we welcome Shabbat, as we welcome this time of rest and reflection and renewal and love and tenderness and softness. So we place it uh, in the palm of the hand and we make Kiddush. Now, there comes the next big <laughs> argument or debate or conversation. Um, do you stand or sit for Kiddush? <laughs> stand says, okay. Why did you stand, Susan? Why do you think your family's custom is to stand? I have no idea. You sat for those Kiddush? You stood for Kiddush. And for challah and for motzi. All three. All three. Candles, wine, and challah, you stood. Yeah. We don't, but we don't know why. Really? Why? Why do we stand for kiddush? Anybody online? You can unmute and talk, people. You don't just have to do hand motions. Like, you can actually speak. Like, Out of respect. So, uh, Bert has a very nice suggestion. Out of respect. The custom was to sit. For Kiddush. (laughs) Until the 16th century, when some folks began to stand for Kiddush, there are still raging debates. I know this is shocking to you. There are raging debates in the Jewish world about whether one stands or one sits for evening Kiddush, for Havdalah, and for Saturday morning Kiddush. You can go to the Talmud, and there are several arguments about for and against both, but the normative custom was to sit. Why? When I make Kiddush, and this is in the Talmud in uh, Masechet Brachot, which is appropriate, blessings, right? The, the whole tractate on blessings. Why, why do we sit? Because when we go, Savri Chevrotai, what are we doing? Why do we do that? Why do we say Savri Chevrotai? Everybody know? Savri, with your permission, what am I asking permission for? I am asking permission to make Kiddush on your behalf. Everyone is obligated, well, in traditional Judaism, every man is obligated to make Kiddush on Shabbat, right? So somebody, if you're in a group, some, not everybody is going to make Kiddush, right? Somebody is charged or given the honor, the privilege of making Kiddush on behalf of the dinner company. How does one eat dinner? How do we signal we have a company for dinner? Everyone is seated. Everyone is seated. And so 
If I'm making Kiddush on your behalf, we are all seated. Now we have an official gathering for dinner, and so I make Kiddush seated. 16th century, it changes, and now many Jews begin to stand for Shabbat. So we would understand that pretty much as normative if we want to show respect. In those communities that were standing, what was their reason for standing? Any guesses? It's not unrelated to respect, but it's not just stam respect, like respect in general. Just in general, how long ago would we have recognized this whole ritual? Um, 100 B.C., 1,000 B.C., or only in Talmudic times? What whole ritual? The whole ritual of Shabbat with the candles and the wine and the bread. Yeah, so it's post-temple. It's post-temple. It's rabbinic. This is all rabbinic. This is all rabbinic. But God commanded it. Right? Um, so it's commanded and it's rabbinic. You have to love the chutzpah of that. How chutzpah is that? We've decided we're going to do this. God commanded that we do this. That is the most chutzpah move. It's genius. I can't read the chat, so I, maybe we need to assign. So, Rebecca, are you still there? My of Rebecca? I am. I love that. Could you write down the questions from the chat? Yes, I was just going to let everyone know if there are questions, I will copy them and send them to you. From Zoom user, so this is from Zoom user. Yes. Why do women light candles, not all people or men, to fulfill the mitzvah? Why do women light candles? Because what, Carol? Because uh, <laughs> men are at shul. Love that. Why are the men at shul? No, like, like, we could keep going with this, like, right? Forever? Women are better at everything. Are women supposed to be <laughs> not obligated to do time-bound mitzvot? Good questions. All right, so Rabbi Rebecca, Amy. write that in Amy. the parking lot. Yes. Rabbi Amy, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if this is just my family or Sephardic tradition, because I'm probably the only one on Zoom or almost the only one who's Sephardic. But in my family, things were different. And my dad actually lit the candles, which is really ah, interesting. Right. Yeah. So what does that tell us? <clears throat> it's not halachic that women light candles. It's minhag. It's tradition. It is not halachic. Her father lit the candles. Right? So obviously, right, in, in the Sephardic tradition, it didn't matter who lit the candles. Go ahead. Anything else, Millie, that was different in your Sephardic tradition? Well, so the, I, I've had a question, but this is more about challah. So I don't know if we're there yet. Oh, we're getting to challah. <laughs> we're getting to challah. So quick question you can answer later, which is that I always grew up with one challah. Okay. And then I'm at work and, you know, people who are Ashkenazi observant conservadox are telling me they always have two hello every yeah. Friday night. Okay. And I was good. like, well, what's that about? Love so that. Is that just for people who are Orthodox or is that Ashkenazi or what is that? All right. Well, I'm not going to give you a hint because I don't want y'all to sign off early. So you're going to have to hang in there for another 15 minutes or so. Okay. So we're going to get to Chala. And thank you for that question. That's a great question. I didn't have it on my list. All right. So stand or sit. So, oh, when I said if we're standing, 
What what might the 16th century folks? What's happening around the 16th century? 1500s. What's going on? Well, not killing Jews. What else was going on? What's going on in the Jewish world? Oh my God! Yeah, they're always killing Jews. But what what was going on in the Jewish world? What was what was really popular? What was deeply spiritual stuff? What was it? Kabbalah. In Kabbalah, what's going on when Shabbos starts? Who's entering? The Shekhinah, also known as the bride, the Shabbos bride, the Shabbos queen is entering our space, our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our lives, our homes. If the queen is coming to your house, do you be like, oh, her highness is here? (laughs) Tell her we're here. Honey, tell her we're Honey, like... What do you do? You get up, right? Oh my gosh, she's coming, right? You stand up to to show that you're excited to greet the queen, to greet, greet the bride. All right, so people started standing for Kiddush to, to greet Shabbat. Um, and so they were on their feet. Now it's just completely like a free-for-all. So whatever the minhag of your family is, if you go to check with someone, like if you go to the Chabad website and say, What's the correct thing to stand or sit for Shabbat? What do you think they say? Check with your rabbi. Check with Twitter. Thanks, Marty. Check with Twitter. Check with your rabbi. All right. So um, because it's like both, right? Both, but we don't want to like say which one is right or wrong because we're going to get in a bunch of trouble. So check with your rabbi about what what is normative in your either household or community. What is the minhag of your community? Okay. So when I say I'm saying Kiddush on behalf of everyone here, I say the traditional is Savri, Rabbanan, Rabotai, like so rabbis and masters with your permission. Well, a lot of us don't love that language. So we say Savri, Chevrotai, right? Chevra, Companions, friends, savri chevrotai. With your permission, my companions, and you all say, l'chaim, which gives me your verbal assent that I have the permission and the honor to make kiddush on your behalf. What does that mean? And I wish more people in our community knew this. It means no one else has to say kiddush. No one else has to say kiddush, just me. If I have your permission to say it on your behalf, to fulfill the mitzvah on your behalf, you don't have to say another word except what? Amen. That's the only thing you have to say. So I feel terrible that I see a lot of people feeling embarrassed that they don't know the words or feeling like they don't they don't know how to sing it or they don't know this. And, and it's just like, you know, nobody has to do anything. Like whoever's making kiddush, makes Kiddush on behalf of the entire community. So just know you don't ever have to say a word at Kiddush. Yes, Linda Scheibel. In our family, yeah. in our family, we all said it because we all felt happy to be there. There's no problem with people saying it. And that way, too, we, the kids, all learned how to do it and so forth. Of course. And, um, and our kids now, sure. I mean, they're all grown up, but I mean, the, our kids learned... How to do it as well. Yeah. Well, sometimes you can learn by watching. You don't have to sing it yourself to learn how it goes. Like I learned watching my grandfather. 
I, I didn't sing it with him because he was making kiddush, right? But, but, but of course, there's, you can always add what, what I feel badly about are some people feel like they're supposed to say kiddush and they don't know how. That, that, that's all I'm saying. Like you, everyone is welcome to make kiddush and around here, everybody makes kiddush, right? Um, except when we get to the reconstructionist part and our guests for B'nai Mitzvah look very confused. They're like, do they know they're saying the wrong words? <laughs> all right. So, uh, we get to now to, do we get, do we get there? Yes. Now we're at Chala. <laughs> Millie, look at that. And she's still awake. I love that. All right. So, um, so we come to Chala. Often you'll see Chala. If you're here, it's on the bima. If it's on someone's table, it's in the middle of the table. And what, how do you know it's a Shabbos Chala and not just a loaf of bread for dinner? It's braided. Ah, that's so funny. That was your first answer. That's very funny. Cause I was going to say it's covered. Right? Like it's covered. Y'all all said braided. That is very funny. So um, braided actually comes from a Germanic custom. Now, you cannot convince me that there is not a link between the things I'm about to tell you. What is the Yiddish, the German for that bread, for bread? The bread that we have on Shabbat? Berchta. 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 In the Teutonic tradition, the pagan Germanic tradition, women would offer locks of their hair braided to the goddess Perchta. You go and convince me there is not a connection between women braiding dough for Perchta, for Berchta, that is not related some way. The Ashkenazi tradition is to braid. That's from Germany, <laughs> right? And all those ways, you cannot tell me there's not a relationship between that and the braiding of women's hair that was offered to Perchta. Like, I truly believe there is influence there, which I love. I mean, that makes me really happy, actually, that women have been you know, offering braided stuff, right, for a long time. But anyway, so y'all all said braided. Um, Millie, was it braided in the Sephardic tradition? Well, because I grew up in the Fairfax neighborhood, it was definitely braided. So I don't okay. know in Egypt. I should ask my mom if they have. Yeah, to I'd love to know what it looked like. Would you let yeah. me know? Would you email me? I would love to know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, I've never had that conversation. I will ask her. I would love to know that. Yes, okay. Eileen. So round challah is on Rosh Hashanah. So the the circle of the year, right? Okay, so yeah, so only on Rosh Hashanah. So at at so to two chalot, right? To Millie's thing. So two chalot, when the Israelites were in the desert and manna fell, they collected manna every day, and it wasn't allowed to be left over. Anything that was left over was spoiled. It had worms in it. You had to eat what you collected every day. So no hoarding. You had to trust that God was going to provide the next day. So you couldn't leave manna over. And if you did, it wouldn't serve you because it was rotten by the morning. What happened on Friday? Two portions of manna fell. So you collected double and took it home because manna was not going to fall on Shabbat because you shouldn't do the work of collecting manna on Shabbat. That's malacha. That's work. It's forbidden on Shabbos. Biblically. So, Millie, 
two chalot is for the double portion of mana <coughs> that fell on Friday that would provide for Shabbat. Are you asking like what we think literally it was? Well, literally, we don't think anything because we don't think it happened. So literally, and I'm not being smart, like literally, it's a story. And so literally nothing. If we look at what they thought when they wrote the story they might be referring to, there's lots, not lots, there's several different educated opinions. One is that there is a kind of carbohydrate that comes from trees, a certain kind of tree, don't ask me, I can't remember which kind, that when the dew falls, it kind of activates this sappy stuff from the tree that is white um, and filled with nutrients. Um, it still happens, it still exists, but it only happens like in the morning, and then it's gone. Um, but it's this white, milky, but but substantive stuff with lots of carbohydrate and lots of good stuff that helps you survive in a desert or a, and remember when we say desert, we're not talking Lawrence of Arabia. We're talking about Midbar. We're talking about wilderness. So we're talking not high desert. We're not talking desert, desert. We're talking, there's enough stuff for uh pasture. They were had flocks. So there's enough stuff for flocks to eat. So, but it's that edge, right, of the desert. So this stuff would have been very nutritious and often helped people survive in a very, very uh, harsh climate. So we think that might be what mana is based on. So two chalot, you can take a little roll and your big challah, like just two, two kinds of, uh, two chalot uh, that we put together and we uh, are going to make mozi. Now, Amy? Yes. Lisa. Yes. Um, I have a question if if there's any rule or if so why much of the halot that we see out there is egg hala. My grandmother from Germany made a potato hala. Oh. And so I wonder what the rule is if there is anything how it came to be one or the other. There is no rule. Hala is just bread. It's just bread. Why do you think egg or potato would have been a staple of the Shabbat table bread? Lots of potatoes. Come on, why? Why? What they had available. Potatoes out there. Well, duh, you're going to use what's available, right? But it's not available, you can't use it, but... What's your dinner? What's your dinner? If you're getting the fanciest dinner you can afford for the week, huh? Meat. 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 If it's meat, what can't you use in the bread? Milk, okay. butter. How are you gonna make it taste like anything? Egg, potato. Like, how do you give it? How do you give it something other than being pita? And and, and I'm not insulting pita. Like people eat pita, right? As their as their staple bread or naan or whatever. But if you're making a fancy loaf for your table and you're eating a fleshig meal, you can't use any dairy. Okay. So you're gonna use egg or you're going to use potato or something else to kind of give it some body stuff, right? Okay. So the, the next debate, anybody know what, it, what I'm going to, so we have the challah, we make mozi, then what happens? We're going to eat it. What is the next debate? Exactly. Cut or tear? Tear. 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 <laughs> tear. Everyone says tear. All right. So why do we tear? Why do we do that? It seems so 
like barbaric. Why do we tear? It's tactile, says Eileen. Why can't you cut? No, mapitam. Ah, I'm stealing my thunder now. Very nice. So when the altar was made, you did not use stones that had been cut with steel because steel is a weapon of war or not even steel, like whatever you use, copper, iron, whatever you use to cut, um, depending on what age we're in, the, the iron age, right? The whatever. So you don't use that on the altar. Once the temple was destroyed, our table becomes the altar. And so there are some people who say you do not bring a knife of metal to the altar. That's not allowed. We know it's not allowed. So what's the only way then to serve the bread? You have to rip pieces off. All right. So that is one interpretation. I grew up with my Orthodox grandfather who would have been horrified to watch people rip up a challah. That would have been horrifying to him. God forbid a million times. He had a very beautiful knife a very beautiful serrated challah knife with a very intricate handle that had the bracha, that had the motzi on the handle, and it was only used on Shabbat. It was only used on Friday night or Shabbos morning and only used to cut the challah. And he, he, we had, he had a silver tray. Well, my grandmother had a silver tray, and inside the silver tray was a perfectly fitted round piece of wood so that one shouldn't, God forbid, damage the beautiful silver with the beautiful silver knife. And he would cut, he would cut, he would cut, he would cut. Then he would take it. And what did he dip it in? The challah? Salt only, on Rosh Hash- only on Rosh Hashanah. Salt. I, I at home, salt my challah. We dip it in salt. Why salt? Because it tastes good. Way better than honey, by the way. So salt tastes really good. Um, and in the ancient world, why salt? It was hard to get. It was hard to get. It preserved things, right? So it, it kept you able to eat things that otherwise would have rotted. So salt was precious. It was hard to get. Remember, at one time, money was salt. You Things were paid for. You, this was worth X amount of salt. Because it preserved things so you could keep things longer and survive longer on that same animal hunk. And it made everything taste better. And so when we're going to make Shabbos and you're going to eat your first taste of Shabbos, God forbid it should be shvach. God forbid it should be meh. And I won't say vanilla because vanilla is amazing. So it shouldn't be meh. Right? It should taste. And so, so, and if the table's the altar, there was salt offered with the sacrifices. The sacrifices were salted. So, for all those reasons, uh, many people dip their challah in salt or they salt the challah before they hand it out. Um, so, mozi, the debate about cutting or tearing, turns out we do both. Right? So, we have the customs of Havdalah. We have, why do they do the crazy things they do with the Torah? Um, we have the whole Torah service. Why do they do that? Right? There's so many things we do during the Torah service in synagogue that people are like, what is that about? Um, mezuzah. Why do we do that? 
right? Is there a right way to do that? Why do we do that at all? Talit? Why do we kiss the Atara? Why do they hold the tzitzit sometimes? Why do they why, What is going on? Why do they touch the Torah with the tzitzit? What's up with all that? Why do we do that? Kippah. Why do we wear one? Who wears one? Do I have to wear one? Should I wear one? As a woman, do I wear one? What's going on? Prayer choreography. Why do we stand? Why do we sit? Why do we take three steps back? Why do we bow? What? Why do we do that? Um, death and mourning. Why don't we do that? Like, why don't we embalm? Why do we cover the mirrors? Why do we pour out the water when you come back from the cemetery? Um, why do we say Kaddish? Do I have to have a minion to say Kaddish? Um, there's kind of a miscellaneous, uh, why do we put a rock on the headstone? Well, that's death and mourning stuff, but like miscellaneous is why do people write G dash D? <laughs> right? Like, um, what if I don't have a Hebrew name? Can I wear a talit if I never had a bar or bat mitzvah? Um, so, right, there's a lot of, and I'm hoping to get more, uh, more miscellaneous stuff from y'all. All right, people, thank you so much for joining us. Please uh, stay tuned for more and uh, email or send in your questions. Why do we do that?